Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses weekly podcast with me, Colin Lambert. And this week it is a Profit and Loss affair all round because I'm joined by uh, P&L's editor-in-chief and founder, Judy Ross. Julie, it's been a while. Um, is the dog locked up? Sorry, what was last night? Is, is the dog locked up? Oh, the dog's locked up, yes. I'm in the uh, office and, and have all the doors shut on the way here. <laughs> Regular listeners will know that last time Julie's Dog made quite a few, um, what can we call it? Cameos. Contributions to the podcast. <laughs> yes, cameos, yeah. So, um, <laughs> really it's one of those questions, we look at, we look at things today and go, where the hell do you start? But, um, I mean, I'm going to give a shout out just, just to get things going on the sort of, um, how can we put it? The right tone, cynical. I want to give a shout out to a couple of analysts out there. So, um, just had an expert commentary. I use the word sparingly um, from a retail broker talking, um, saying the euro sterling plummeted yesterday, and um, it could go through parity. Well, the high of euro sterling was ninety two seventy. So, even by my rudimentary maths, that means it would have to move another eight percent before it went through parity. So, I'm not sure whether that says anything about that company's spreads. Or maybe there's someone out there getting a little bit overexcited about some of the volatility we're seeing. More on volatility later. Um, the other thing is, um, the analyst that, uh, I think it was, it was on one of the news services, I can't remember which one it was now, but they um, said the market consensus for initial claims, US initial claims, which came out Thursday when we're recording this, was uh, 1.8 million um, claims, which is an absolute skyrocket from where it was last month. I think it was like 300,000. Um, but it's, I was a bit bemused by that because they're coming back now saying, wow, we're surprised because it was 3.2 million. So it's nearly more than double what their, their um, estimate was. Um, well, California last week said they're going to have 1 million alone. Last time I checked, California's a big state, but there's a, there's, there is you know, quite a bit of country to the east of it as well. So um, yet again, I find myself wondering why we're paying these analysts all this money that we are. Anyway, my cynicism out of the way, Julie, from your point of view, and what you're seeing over there, because obviously I'm, I'm in the UK at the moment, you're in the US, what do you think in terms of how the analysts are approaching the whole the whole saga in terms of like trying to pick a bottom? <laughs> to be honest, I, I don't think anybody has a, a real clue. I mean, I, I read something yesterday that said um, analysts are shifting um, to the worst case scenario being over in terms of market meltdowns, but um, on the one hand, last night we had a $2 trillion stimulus package agreed unanimously. Um, and on the other hand, this morning, uh, we had U.S. unemployment claims that were far beyond expectations. So I don't know. There must be, you know, brave souls to, to say the market meltdowns are behind us. Um, I'm glad I'm not an analyst right now. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, though, they're paid to make these calls. You know, as, as an ex-trader, I, it's always nice when you can get an analyst to actually make a prediction. The old joke is, why do you never get a one-armed economist? Because they can't say, on the other hand, um, <laughs> drum roll, please. Um, I mean, the, it's interesting to me because I look at it and look at how the markets are going. And I actually wrote on Monday in my column that, generally speaking, when you get these big crises, and I understand that you know a pandemic is not something the modern markets have dealt with but when you do get these big events and you do get outlandish moves 
inevitably three months later, people looking back going, how did we let the market get to that extreme level? And I kind of wonder if these analysts are saying the same thing. They're saying, I think what the net U.S. equity market decline is about 25% over, the la- over this year. So it's lost a quarter of its value. And it still means it's probably up on a three- to five-year basis quite comfortably. But maybe what they're looking at is they're going like, yeah, there's one of these extreme value situations. I have to say, I'm, I'm kind of with you. I look at it and go, you know, the U.S. doesn't look in a good place to me in particular. But the problem we've got is that we live in a risk-on, risk-off world. And maybe this is because it's a machine-driven um, decision-making process. You know, everyone's using the same data, so they're going to come to the same conclusions. But I look at it and go, well, if it's risk-on, risk-off, that's fine for the initial crisis. But it strikes me we know what this what you know what this means now. And to your point, yeah, you know, we know that this pandemic is going to get worse before it gets better. And I guess that's what you mean about picking a, a market bottom, yeah? Yeah, and and within that, you know, we're seeing real volatility in the FX market. Um, but from people I've talked to, yes, they like volatility, but they don't like this type of volatility because it's driven by uncertainty. Um, yeah. I, I don't know what when we'll ever see the good kind of volatility, but I, I don't think it's going to be for a long time. <laughs> You gotta, you gotta love, you gotta love market participants. Even when they, yeah, they've, they've spent the decade bemoaning low volatility when they get it. It's the wrong kind of volatility. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I would argue that, I mean, yeah, to their, to counter their point, all volatility is driven by uncertainty. Because the more things we know, the less volatile markets are going to be. Um, I, I tend to look at it and think to myself, we may, well, we should be now moving to a stage where analysts are getting away from risk on, risk off, and are now saying, okay, so I think in the picture that we're building here, these are the weak areas. And then actually start maybe putting some trades in around that. Um, At the moment, we're blindly buying the US dollar as a safe haven play. And as you will know better than I, at the moment, the US looks anything but a safe haven in terms of this pandemic. It looks like Effectively, it could become ground zero for it, the new ground zero for it. Indeed, which I guess uh, explains what's happening in the gold market a bit. Yes, well, <laughs> the gold market was an interesting one this week, wasn't it? I mean, like, it's, we, let, let's talk about this, I guess, more generally about how markets are functioning. But um, it was interesting Monday uh, morning here in the UK when I got a couple of calls from us and, you know, what is going on in gold where, you know, the, the basis spread, I think, was normally maybe 30 cents, blew out to $65. You know, spreads, some people were quoting spreads that, you know, haven't been seen in probably all of modern market history. Um, the problem was, actually, sorry, I do apologize, it was Tuesday morning in the UK. Uh, the problem was on Monday, I think three, three Swiss refineries, and I challenge anyone to say that quickly, and I haven't been drinking yet, I promise you. Um, three Swiss refineries shut their doors because of the virus, which then meant, as I understand it, and believe me, I'm no gold expert, but as I understand it, and as as, as listeners know, that will never stop me giving an opinion. The <laughs> Don't they know it, Colin? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> the, the futures um, physical hedge is is quite a popular one. 
So a lot of the time, you know, people who trade physical with a hedge on, they'll hedge on COMEX. Um, and obviously you need to deliver. Now, COMEX supported the 100 ounce. It was priced in 100 ounces. So that was generally what was produced out of Switzerland. The problem is a lot of players trade in London and London uh, trades in 400 ounce bars. So what they do if they need to sell it, they can send it to, to a refiner who can break it up into 100 ounce bars for delivery. All of a sudden, everyone's going, well, how do I know I'm going to get delivery if there's nowhere to refine this gold down? Now, people were telling me, you know, the credit risk on this was just off the scale. You know, we worry about credit risk in other markets, but in this one, it was like not so much the counterparty, especially if you're on a platform that's anonymous, but it's not so much the counterparty. But you're like, what you're now judging is can that counterparty actually have access to physical gold? And we, you know, the fact is nobody could, nobody could guarantee it. Now it was kind of solved to a degree on, I think it was Wednesday morning when COMEX said, look, we're announcing new contracts, hopefully get them approved this week, which will, um, allow people to trade in 400 ounce bars and deliver in those. That kind of solves the problem. Although I've spoken to one senior source since who said, this will make the problem easier, but it won't make it go away. And until such time as the refining capabilities are there, the gold market could continue to be dislocated. And by dislocated, what they meant was it's hardly functioning, which I think is like a, it's, it's quite a difficult situation for something that is meant to be a safe haven play. So, yeah, I'm not quite sure where we go with that one. Speaking of safe haven plays, actually, here's a good opportunity. So you focus in a lot on the crypto market. Right. Now, last time I checked, wasn't the current situation meant to be why we had crypto? Yeah, I mean, um, the argument for a decentralized digital currency has been uh, to take it out of the hands of central banks and governments. Um, but what we are seeing is the role of central banks and governments addressing a global crisis um, that wasn't started within the financial sector for a change, um, but which, you know, is is being, you know, real, real um, uh, tools are being used, I guess, um, to counter what is being um affected by by something out of everybody's control this pandemic um people are not rushing to bitcoin as a safe haven um perhaps if there was another catalyst for this global disruption um if it was another G- global financial crisis perhaps um but this is this is something i don't think people thought about um what strikes me is also um People that hodl, uh, hold on to their Bitcoin that they bought years ago and wait for it to just go up, uh, reminds me a bit of like, uh, people today hoarding toilet paper. <laughs> it's kind of a, yeah. it's detrimental to the whole. Um, it's every man for himself thinking, whereas this is a global pandemic and the, the, uh, there's central banks working together to address it. Um, they're also going country by country. Um, I, I think what we're seeing is unprecedented, obviously, um, but I don't, I don't think it makes a case for digital currencies, although I know the central banks are pressing ahead with central bank digital currencies, um, but that I think will be used more for payments than it will be 
within countries' borders for for managing their own stresses. Mm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this month we've seen Bitcoin collapse in a heap and then kind of rebound. I, I suppose you could argue, as some people have tried, that this is people selling good positions to pay for bad. I never quite understood that one because, you know, trading 101 is about cash management and risk management. And generally speaking, what that dictates is you actually cut your losses and run your profits. So I'm, I'm, I'm a bit bemused by all that one. I'm also wondering exactly how many multi-asset class investment managers there are out there that have crypto as part of their strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are, obviously there are dedicated crypto funds. I don't sense there's many that are looking to invest across crypto equities rates um, and commodities. Do you? Um, I think there probably are some, yeah. Um, okay. You know, it's another diversification. Um, one thing I, I want to point out is I was reading, uh, I think this morning, that although, you know, prices in, in digital currencies are down, uh, there's a case that or somebody suggested that um, investors may, once they get their stimulus checks, so they may use part of it to buy Bitcoin. I think that's... Uh, a fallacy. I mean, I think people are going to be using their stimulus checks to pay their rent and buy food. Um, I, I don't really see an upside here for Bitcoin um, in this scenario. I'm not saying it never will recover, um, but it's certainly not not a savior in this in this era currently. That'll be the same people that tell us that Bitcoin's going to be at two hundred thousand dollars in a couple of years' time. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you, my holdings are down, and I I bought around this level. Um, I don't know, five years ago. So <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not a believer yeah. yet. <laughs> no, no. I mean, and it's going to be interesting actually, because I mean, the last, the end of last week, just after we recorded last week's podcast. In fact, the Barclay Hedge um, hedge fund indices came out. And it was interesting that currency traders did best, which I think we can expect. This is for February, I have to add. But the thing which you can expect in volatile markets, um, crypto traded, cryptocurrency uh, traders index was second best performer. I think it's about plus 1.7% on the month. But that was a month where Bitcoin was fairly um, stable. I think it was about a $1,000 range for the month. It'll be interesting to see what that index says for March. Because obviously we've had like a four and a half thousand dollar range um, today, and we're getting towards the end of the month now. But it's it's been a lot, lot more hectic. It'd be interesting to see how those strategies and those firms stood up in those in those circumstances. Um, I guess we'll have to wait and see on that one. Yeah, My I mean, I would suspect. Sorry. No. Oh, I would just suspect it's not going to look like February. No. Yeah, well, it could look like February, but with a minus in front of it rather. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. think it'll look. Yeah. I don't think it's going to look great. No, no, I think you're right, and I think you know it's it's one of those things. Um, obviously, this is a podcast that uses Bitcoin to make a lot of predictions of, few of which are right. It would be wouldn't it be ironic if you came on and just blandly stated you don't think it's going up, and you were the first person to get it right on this. <laughs> So, well, I'm already regretting saying I bought it five years ago at this level because it was later <laughs> than that. <laughs> yeah, did you get interest on that? <laughs> uh, my only ob- my only observation, I think, is 
that I think when it comes to hoarding Bitcoin and hoarding toilet paper, <laughs> you, you've got a use for one that you certainly don't have for the other. Um, <laughs> just, to let people, just to let people ponder on that one, we'll be back in just a sec. Profit and Loss is moving industry conferences online. Instead of traveling to London, Frankfurt, or New York, visit profit-loss.com slash events and register for our new Dial-In Day online conferences. You can also email info at profit-loss.com for sponsorship opportunities. So, what do you think, Julian? Should we talk FX markets? Yeah, let's... um shift gears to what we're good at. <laughs> um, Colin, what are you what are you hearing? How are what are you seeing? How are markets holding up generally? How are they functioning? It's a bit of a mixed bag, actually. Um, because overall FX markets are functioning well and I think that's a that's a factor of there's a kind of a the the market makers and and active traders are doing fairly well. And therefore, they're posting more interest. I think position taking is on a much shorter time horizon for some people, but it's not on these microseconds or milliseconds anymore. It's about they're looking at it going, you know, if you're a market maker and you get taken and you think the market and you're happy with your position, people are running it and they're, they're, they're feeding out their positions. So there's a, little, there's a lot more speculative activity going on there. Uncertainty breeds good volatility for these people. So generally speaking, they're happy to put a price in. It has to be noted that I reckon it was probably around the end of last week, so that's that will be the week ending the 20th of March, when we first started seeing chinks in the armour. Um, I mean, emerging markets has been wiped out in many cases, um, but then you kind of expect that because they don't have those liquidity levels. You don't have the levels of data that give the machines confidence to really quote them well. Um, but even mainstream markets... All of a sudden, you're getting, you know, I'm getting a lot of calls from people saying, like, I'm getting some ridiculous spreads. Now, I may be biased as an ex-trader, but I reckon, generally speaking, there's good enough competition out there for people to quote the appropriate spreads for the appropriate volatility. And I don't, I haven't heard much in the way of LPs quoting too wide for the circumstances. Not like we saw during, um, for instance, the um, Sterling flash crash, when someone sent me a screenshot of a of a so-called LP quoting 60 big figures wide in cable, which was pretty much more than the total range for the previous 10 years. So we've seen none of that, which I think is good. Um, interestingly, people are telling me that uh, they're seeing their customers use more algos, which means the customers are willing to take on more market risk. That's an interesting one because... You kind of understand it if you're looking at slower moving markets, but in spot, that becomes a bit of a challenge. Um, so I guess what it is, they're, they're making that judgment call. If, if they've got to buy 50 million cable, for instance, and the top of book spread is 10 points or 10 points in maybe 5 million or three, even 3 million, sometimes it's 10 points in 1 million, um, well, they can actually go and, you know, go into the middle and capture five points of spread, and they can keep doing that. And hopefully, you know, that's what I think is also helping the market function. You're seeing more client interest go direct to the market. Um, the challenge is when the market runs away from them. So two things we've seen. I was on an analyst call earlier today, and they said that 
In terms of algal use, yes, it's significantly higher. Although, interestingly, they said that they had, they didn't think it was significantly higher compared to every other channel. You know, algal use had gone up with the other channels. Um, but there was a definite shift towards the faster quote, first, sorry, faster executing algos. So those algos that post interest, if they don't get hit, they'll pay the offer. Which I can't, I think kind of makes sense. The other thing I heard from Source the other day is that there's also a lot more interest. Or the first group of customers going like, yeah, I'm using the algo. I'm capturing spread. This is fantastic. Nothing can go wrong now. And guess what? The market moves 60, 70 points, and it went very, very wrong. So, now who would say nothing could go wrong? Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Only an FX trader can say that. Nothing could go wrong now. Yeah, as they sit there on the bid waiting to buy, having bought 10 of their 100 million, yeah. Um, but I guess the point, what they're making was, when that went wrong, they went, okay, what I need now is those algo providers that will give me a risk transfer price at the same time. So they're sitting there watching the algo execute. If they see the market run away, they have a risk transfer price, which is wide. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's, it's a wide price. But they can at least then go, bank, I'm done. So their hope is, and what they're telling me they're getting is, on average, they're filling about 60 to 70% of the order on a passive basis, spread capture basis. And then they kind of lose their nerve and just take the balance and go, I've got out of that one really well. Which I think is, you know, what people people are about. The commensurate thing to I guess a knock on to that is that people are also now telling me a lot more about their LPs and their algo providers. On the algo provider front they're saying, without a principal business, the algo provider is worthless to them in, in these market conditions. And actually here's a quiz for you. Um, someone told me the other day, and I, I'll ask you what what they what you think they told me because I'm not sure this is actually fact. How many algo providers do you think there are on Bloomberg's FX platform? People offering ex- algo execution strategies. How many different mm-hmm. providers do you reckon there are? Um, Give it in terms of how I many guess you guess twenty. Not bad. <laughs> not bad. Actually. I was told it was twenty eight. All right. All right. Now. And I look at it and go, and I'd love to, I'd love to, <laughs> when we go offline, I could ask you who the 20 you think they are, because I look at it and go like, when someone, when they told me this, I'm going like, really? 28 algo providers? You know, 28 people that can actually provide you with, um, their own bespoke algo, with their own bespoke liquidity pool backing it up? I just don't see it. And that's kind of playing out this week. Yeah, what we're seeing is, um, the algos that are going wrong are those that are purely agency-based. And a lot of the time, the algos are provided off the shelf by either another bank or by a third-party provider. And functionally, they work fine. But it's all about access and liquidity. And the more public markets you hit, the more likely you're going to have a market impact. So what I'm hearing this week around the algo provider is they're kind of focusing on around four or five who are getting the lion's share of the volume because they have that function to get the get the client out of the balance of the order quickly. Interesting on liquidity providers, um, everyone's telling me that they're, they're they're all giving me three or four names that are really good, and these are the people that are staying in there with them. They're not the same names for everybody, so I would say there's probably eight to ten 
LPs out there that I'm getting a lot of good reports on. Not all of them banks, I have to say. Um, there's a non-bank firm that features quite heavily. Um, so the LPs, are, you know, those LPs that are coming in are doing well. Definitely, definitely there are LPs that were expected to be better that are stepping back. They're finding they can't handle it. And you kind of wonder whether they'll be found out in the end on this thing. What I thought was interesting out of all of that, though, was how uh, the customers are telling me they're finally going to this three to four LP model. So the aggregation, if you know, you think back to when we've seen people on stages at our events over the years, they've been saying, oh, you know, I aggregate, you know, 15 liquidity providers and seven platforms. And then they went, okay, well, the, the LPs won't aggregate me with a public venue. So I'm now down to 15 LPs. And, you know, it's information leakage. So what they're doing now, these current environments have forced everyone to focus in on the relationship. And they're all kind of coming to the same conclusion. There's three or four providers that are there for them. So that, I think, is, is an interesting development. It'll be interesting whether it continues that way, I guess. So of those um, um, three to four providers, um, and th those differ by who you talk to, or does it come down yeah. to the same three to four? No, I would say, I, 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 generally speaking, I would say there are seven or eight right. names that get multiple, you know, like significant multiple mentions, and there's two or three that get multiple mentions. I mean, there are there are definitely... A couple of there's like three banks and one non-bank firm that feature in a lot of conversations around how they've stood in there. They're streaming, yeah, you know, they're streaming wider. Don't get me wrong, um, they're streaming wider, but they're streaming in good size. The stream is robust. They're hitting the stream and it's not disappearing. It's not they're not running away. Um, they're using liquidity refill mechanisms, so you can't just machine gun the stream, which is Frankly, why would you want to do that anyway? I mean, there's some idiots out there, but why they would want to destroy the primary source of liquidity for themselves, I don't know. Um, so, yeah, I would. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens when we come to our um, Reader's Choice Awards later this year, see where the votes come in, because hopefully this will be fresh in everyone's memory, and so we'll get an even broader picture of what people are thinking in terms of their LPs and who really stood up for them. Um, we may have to change the scenario a bit and let people vote one, two, three, <laughs> so that we can uh, maybe get a better picture. But definitely, this is finding you know, to use the old adage: this is sorting the men from the boys in in a big way. The other thing it's also doing is I think it's highlighting the hypocrisy of some customers because we, or well, I keep on hearing repeatedly from customers themselves complaining about the spreads they're getting. You know, well, and they can't understand why they're not getting quite two points wide in a hundred euro dollar, because that that is literally to your to your point earlier about the virus, about people not really understanding how bad this can get. That is head in the sand stuff. You can't you can't expect someone to sit there and go like, oh, here you go, you're a steamroller coming down the hill with your hundred million euros. I'll just stand in front of you and and, and help you along. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous to expect that. So we've got to manage client expectations. So, you know, whether we'll do that effectively or not will be, I guess, something to watch for. And the, I guess my final point on this would be 
we need to watch for this next Tuesday, which is month end. Yeah, you were um, talking about the fix, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, we we got the month end uh, fix. It's not only month end; it's quarter end. Now, I, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but generally speaking, I think it can be anything up to ten times the volume that you see on the average daily fix at four p.m. Wow. And I'm talking to a lot of people running around scared about what could happen next week, because I mean, some are looking at mechanisms to hedge it out differently. Um, they're also looking at, um, well, they're talking to their trustees or oversight function going, look, this could go horribly wrong. Can we hedge out of it before? Or can we do this hedge over or benchmark it over a longer window and execute over a longer window? I don't know how those conversations are going. You have to hope that they are going to go well, because if they don't, it becomes a real problem because the active manager, we, my nightmare scenario is all the active managers look at it and go, actually, you know what? I, my analysis is that I'm not going to get very many, I'm not get a great netting experience of that fix. So therefore I don't want to put my order in there. So therefore I'll execute it, say 2.30 PM or whatever it may be. And so the active manager will execute a lot of their fixes over the course of the day. Yeah, to, to hedge their positions, and that leaves us with just the passive index trackers who are going to be predominantly one way. And we're still in a situation, I was, as I mentioned earlier, I was on an analyst call to, with a bank today talking about conditions, and I asked a question about the month-end fix, and they really had absolutely nothing to say about it. And to me, all that highlighted was their, the banks are still not engaged with the W fix beyond being an agent. We will take you. They're still traumatized by the events of 2013. We'll take your order. We will execute it according to the five-minute window at one-second intervals. We will give you the fix back, and that will reflect the fix. The fact that it may be 30 points higher, and you've and you've had you know 25-point slippage on a on a yard of dollars, has nothing to do with me. That's the, that's what an agency model means to them. So, really interested to see what happens um, next Tuesday. So, we shall see. Um, to close out, I guess, um, we, as every other business, has been challenged by, you know, the pandemic. Um, and obviously we have London, Frankfurt, well, Mexico, London, Frankfurt, and New York conferences coming up. And we've done something different. Haven't yes, we? So we have. you want to run us through what we're doing? Sure. So, uh, to kick off, yesterday's Mexico conference was rescheduled till uh, October 28th. Um, we are going to hopefully have all these troubles behind us by then, and we'll be heading to Mexico City for an in-person event. Um, but for London, Frankfurt, and New York, we are launching what we're calling dial-in days. So it'll be the same dates as our conference. Um, we're going to run a series of panel discussions every hour on the hour for 30-minute sessions. Um, and, you know, these are going to be... Uh, around some very topical issues. Um, we've rejigged the London program a bit to uh, make sure we have a lot of focus on, on you know, what people are facing um, day to day. Uh, this will be in a month's time. So I think the markets and, and people working from home and remote sites will have settled down a bit in terms of, um, you know, 
business as usual, um, if you yeah. can use that term in today's world. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we think this is going to be some something for people to really uh, stay engaged with the industry. Um, and they can send in questions. Um, we may even have a profit and loss socks competition mail email in <laughs> uh, that that we can we won't lose that element <laughs> um so so these will be uh the london and they're all very different programs um the london event will be um you know as london is the major uh trading hub for fx it's going to be very fx um trading conditions focused um on april 29th um, then when we move to Frankfurt on May, is it 5th or 6th, Colin? Uh, <laughs> I should w. know this. <laughs> um, I think it's the 6th because I was due to be fine there. Okay. <laughs> Uh, yes, indeed, it is May 6th. Um, so those will be topics around um, the euro. It'll be around IBORs, um, uh, how the global code is, is uh, assisting uh, with things like how people are trading the fix next Tuesday, I guess. <laughs> um, and then the New York, ev- yeah, the New York event, um, is scheduled for May 19th. Um, that will carry on our buy side focus themes. Um, so that again is very, very different topics. Um, so these are each three unique dial in days. Um, so we, we hope you know, this will bring a wider reach of audience um, because people can dial in from anywhere. And we're hoping to make yeah. the audio available as well. Um, so if people miss the, the actual dial-in, which I don't think they will because everybody's looking for things to do <laughs> and to uh, well, yeah, connect I mean, with people. <laughs> as, as those photos that went viral of people walking through parks and going to the beach indicates, not everyone's not there's quite a few people not taking this working from home seriously. <laughs> hey, we need we, we need our breaks, up. Colin. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. I'm going for a walk after up. this, but it's lunchtime here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Great. Well, I mean you can get the details, keep keep an eye on the Profit Loss website for the dial in day details. If nothing else, it just gives me an opportunity to argue with more people at a higher frequency. And who would want to miss nothing that? Else. No, exactly. Nothing else. Dial in for those ones. Um, that's it for this week. Um, Julie, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Um, and thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week. Um, yeah, well, stay healthy and um, have a good week. <laughs>